The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Amen. We praise the Lord for this initiative that uh, <clears throat> several of our people are involved in with, um, with the uh, food bank. And if you would, are interested in getting involved, like Kevin, Pastor Kevin Schuler said there, please uh, don't hesitate to look for him or one of the others uh, after the service. I want to tell you about another need. Uh, English conversation circles have begun. And uh, we meet in the fireside room on Wednesday evenings, and we would, we would really need, we really need someone with childcare uh, capabilities, plan to protect, and so on. Um, we have so many that bring their children, and it's hard for them to get away otherwise. And so if you're able to help with that, you talk to one of us or see Jill Schuler. She is very involved in that. And, uh, and then finally, I want to mention, you, you saw a green insert in your bulletin. And we have been uh, plugging this for a while. It's an organized creativity opportunity. Uh, pretty soon, when we finish this whole process, there's going to be a beautiful Four Seasons painting in our foyer behind the Welcome Center. And you're all going to have a hand in that painting. And the first part of your hand in that painting is all of us writing this scriptural meditation or reflection that will be actually on the back of that painting for a memorial to come. And so I did mine last night. I chose a verse out of Revelation that, that made me think about how even as we as a congregation are growing to reflect the ethnic diversity of Winnipeg and of this world, my, my vision went to Revelation where all around the throne of God, one day we're all going to be with other brothers and sisters around the globe uh, standing and worshiping Jesus Christ. And so I chose that verse, and I reflected my meditation on that. So just a couple of sentences you could write and a verse, and then uh, hand that in at the Welcome Center. We'd really appreciate that. And then we'll be giving you next steps on your more artistic piece on that uh, in, the, in the months to come. Would you take your Bibles? No, not your Bibles. Take your bulletin. And uh, there's a, an insert in your bulletin that's yellow. And I would, instead of reading the scripture this morning, I'd like us to look at a few scriptures that are found printed there. And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you will. And there are three passages of scripture at the top of the yellow little insert. And I would ask you to read them out loud with me as we listen to God's word. Let's begin in the beginning with Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And now 2 Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Remain standing as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, as we just uh, pause now to ask you for the illumination of the Holy Spirit upon this message, Lord, that not only your anointing would fall upon my lips, but upon all of our minds and hearts, so that what we think and what we decide out of today's message will be in keeping with your revealed will. God, we thank you for 
the food bank that we just read heard about. We thank you, God, for life groups that we heard about. We thank you for the body life of this church family. We ask you to continually make us grow healthy and strong. Show us our blind spots, O oh God. Help us to walk humbly before you and with each other. O oh Lord God, we thank you for what you're doing here. And Lord, we would pray for our city, Winnipeg, and our province, and our country, Canada, especially as we near the time of the federal election. We ask you, O oh God, that you would, by your sovereign hand, overrule and lead that election process. O oh God, would you watch over each candidate? Would you open their mouths to speak what is right and true? Lord, would you help them? And Lord, we will, we will be our, doing our part to pray for our governing leaders. We commit them to you. And we commit ourselves to you now and ask that, Jesus, you might be present by your Spirit to uh, help this message to reach its goal. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week, we introduced the uh, sermon series on Genesis. I talked about worldviews that are worlds apart. I shared with you about the tenacity of the Christian worldview last week. I shared with you the importance of an authentic faith that we approach all these questions with. I shared with you about some of the things that we learn from Genesis 1, about the reasons why we study Genesis. And I shared with you as well why the Christian worldview is so unique compared to all other worldviews. Today, as we take the next step, it really is an introductory sermon, and it has to do with how is it that we're meant to approach the book of Genesis. And so this morning, I would like to dive into that. And to start with, <clears throat> I would like to talk about the word taboo. And I seem to always have trouble with these little gizmos. And I got the green light on. There we go. Now, taboo is a word that you know all about. You, you uh, perhaps have shared it with your family members. You know, Grandpa's coming over tonight. It's taboo to talk about politics, okay, with Grandpa or whatever. You know what that word means. How many of you have played the game taboo, the board game? Oh, good, lots of you. That, that's the kind of game where what you do is one person gets a, a word on a card, and they have to try and get their team to guess the word and say it, and they can't say a whole list of other words that are so close to that word. And so the best team, that, that, um, a winning team, is made by those who have shared experiences, you know, those who have shared ideas of, of words and meanings, or things like, hey, you know, the thing we saw at the Forks yesterday, boom, they got it. Everybody else is in the dark because they weren't at the Forks yesterday. And so that's what makes a good team in the game of Taboo. And of course, it's the same in anything. If I were to say to you, for example, this morning, it will take you 35 minutes to get from the cave to the junction because it is congested from the slip to the Nagel curve. Nagel curve, sorry. None of you probably are really understanding that, but I know a couple people here in the room today that know exactly what I said because they've lived in Chicago and they have traveled the freeways, Wayne and Barb Brewer. 
Now, if I said instead of that reference point, which comes from Chicago, something that sounded more like this, it could take you 20 minutes to get from Confusion Corner to the perimeter because of the congestion at the Jubilee underpass. Now, I think I got all of you on board, but someone from Chicago is going to go, what Confusion Corner are you talking about? So what is the point? Well, the point is, is that, would you advance it for me, Shelley? The point is, <laughs> is that effective communication requires words and ideas that have an agreed-upon meaning, a shared reference point, and it's the same in approaching anything else. If we do not have an agreed-upon meaning and reference point, we're going to have, obviously, disagreements and problems. When we don't agree about the facts, we see it in the federal election already, don't you? You, you, you get somebody stands up and says, now... We are right on track with all of our goals, da-da-da-da-da. The next leader gets up and says, they're not at all on track with all, you know. And, and who do you believe? Who do you believe? Obviously, they're not talking the same language, referring to the same meanings and reference points, and so on. Now, whether it's talking about earthly truth, like climate change or cancer, or whether we're talking about heavenly and eternal realities, like the origin of man, or the destiny we all have. The same is true. We need to clarify and be in agreement on what we're talking about as truth. Some people speaking, for example, of the age of the earth, say that the age of the earth is young, maybe four or 5,000 years old. Some say it is old, billions of years old. Let me say clearly this morning, you might be sitting and someone right ahead of you believes the earth is young. And you might have someone right behind you that believes the earth is old. And you might be sitting right beside someone who has no clue how old the earth is. Why don't you turn to them right now and say, it's okay. Because <laughs> guess what? We will be talking about these things, and what we need to understand is what an old German theologian, next slide please, what an old German theologian who has a name that does not sound anything German to me, but, but uh, he said once, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Our unity, friends, does not, does not deter, is not determined by what we believe about the age of the earth. And so... We will walk out of this room in a little while. We will walk out in unity because we believe in Jesus Christ. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. We believe, as Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse 13, that our, it is in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God that our unity is found. And the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God is different than the faith and the knowledge of the age of the universe. That's different. We are not unified on our faith and knowledge about the age of the earth. We are unified about the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Now, when we think about disagreements arising on huge questions such as the origin of humans and the universe, some depend on science to make their arguments, and some depend on Scripture to make their arguments, and some depend on both science and Scripture to make their arguments. And what is critical is that we pursue the truth in how we interpret both science and Scripture, and that we be consistent 
and that, that if there's going to be agreement on the terms and the data and the research and the rules of interpretation, whether we're talking about how to interpret science and scientific findings or how to interpret scripture and scriptural findings, if we are not agreed on those things, we will definitely come to different conclusions. In the insert in your bulletin, again, the yellow piece of paper, I have included a quote that I think is very important for us by William Dembski. <clears throat> William Dembski said this, God gave humanity two primary sources of revelation about himself, the world that he created and the scripture that he inspired. These are known also as general and special revelation, or sometimes as the book of nature and the book of scripture. God can, God can thus be viewed as the author of two books. We study science to understand the first of these books and theology to understand the second. So God has revealed himself through nature and scripture. This might be kind of a new understanding for some of us to think that God has given us two books, but indeed, even the Bible teaches us that God has revealed himself in two very primary ways. And God is the Lord of all knowledge. Whether it is theological knowledge or scientific knowledge, God is the Lord of all knowledge. And how we read the Bible, how we handle science, how we handle both of these books is going to determine the outcomes and the beliefs that we will arrive at. And there's one stream of thought that when it comes to the science-theology discussion tries to resolve the tension by keeping them completely separate. In other words, they try to say that theology has one sphere or realm of addressing things and science has another sphere and they never interact. And that, to me, is absolutely illogical. It's unbiblical. It does not come out of a Christian worldview. One of the propensities of that or one of the authors of that was a guy named Stephen J. Gould. And he believed that these two need to be separate, and that's how he solves the problem of theology and science, or Bible and creation and science and evolution. Well, that's just ridiculous. The formal term for that is non-overlapping magisteria, and that is not tenable. That compartmentalization of big questions into two parts of your brain does not compute. We cannot say that one has to do with experience and the other has to do with ethics or ultimate meaning. You see, the Bible teaches that the Lord is Lord of all knowledge. God is the Lord of science. God is the Lord of creation, scripture, theology. He speaks to us in both ways and he designed both ways to reveal something about himself. God does not want, in other words, science to be atheistic. And God does not want theology to be unscientific. Okay? God is the God of all knowledge. I like what Francis Schaeffer said. Francis Schaeffer said, we need a Christianity. And his whole community in Labrie, Switzerland, he said this, we, we need a Christianity which has balance, not only exegetically and intellectually, but also in the area of reality and beauty. And so if God has spoken, my friends, through two books, then we must learn to be listeners. We must beware of falling prey to confirmation bias, the tendency to interpret new evidence as confirmation of one's own existing beliefs or theories, instead of being open-minded to truth, new truth. We learn to listen 
This past week, I, I listened. <laughs> this past week, I listened to a podcast by Ben Shapiro interviewing a professor of physics at the University of California called, named uh, Brian Keating. And he asked Keating, he asked him, why the vast majority of scientists are atheists? He asked him that question straight up, this professor of physics. And without skipping a beat, the professor responded by saying, the professor responded by saying, it's because most of them would rather have questions that cannot be answered than answers that cannot be questioned. Now think about that answer for a moment. When I heard it, I immediately thought, how did we arrive at that? How did our side, Christians, give the impression to the other side, atheists, that if you take the fork in the road that leads to God, that you cannot question any of the answers given by God in Holy Scripture? Now, I'm not talking, suggesting that we sell our soul to an autonomous opinion to create a God in our image rather than the God revealed in Scripture. I am simply saying this, that most genuine faith travels down the road of many doubts and questions and even carries with it many unanswered questions until the day we die. Lord Tennyson said, there lives more faith in honest doubt than in half the creeds. So for a non-Christian scientist to think that she or he is given a package from God of answers that they better not explore or doubt or pull apart or question is the wrong image of Christian faith. Jesus did not condemn doubting Thomas when he came, not believing in the resurrection. In fact, Jesus visited his home and he showed him his wounded side, and he said, stop doubting and believe. He gave evidence. He didn't condemn the doubter. So the first thing is, is learning to discuss the things we often avoid. Next, I would like to move on to talk about hermeneutics, understanding the science of interpretation. We are told that cooking is an art and baking is a science. I am not authority on either because I don't do enough of either, as my family will tell you. But if I had to comment on the science of hermeneutics, or hermeneutics, I should say, I would say that it is more of a science than it is an art. That is, there are rules that you must abide by. It is the science of interpretation. It comes from a Greek word which means to interpret. You may have never heard the word before, but you're practicing it every day. When you open your Bible, you are doing hermeneutics. Why are you doing hermeneutics? Because you're reading something and you're interpreting it and applying it to the way you live your life. Even though it was written by someone else to someone else in a different time and language and a culture far removed from your time and your language and your culture, you are interpreting, you are doing hermeneutics. In spite of these challenges, you read your Bible, you interpret, and you seek to live by it. And God wants you to, and that's why He has safeguarded the text all the way down to us. But of course, the science of hermeneutics applies to other areas as well, not just the Bible. It applies to the other God book, right? Hermeneutics, proper interpretation, applies to not just this book, but the book that we walk around in, the creation of God, the nature that we love and live in. 
And therefore, all sciences, archaeology, biology, cosmology, physics, they must all submit to good hermeneutical practices of interpreting data through proper experimentation and observation and hypothesis and conclusion and good research and all that stuff. Since we are not studying science on Sunday mornings in the Genesis series, we're not going to comment a lot on scientific practice. I'm not going to be. We are going to be studying Genesis, and so I'll be talking a lot about hermeneutical practices as it concerns the Bible and the Word of God. However, we do not want to make the mistake of Stephen Jay Gould in trying to think that these are completely separate entities that must never be crossed. As we study Scripture, we will see that science and Scripture are interwoven. Always. So we must seek to interpret both science and Scripture in harmony with one another since God is the author of both books. And we must not take sides or reinterpret the truth. So when we see Scripture addressing something that scientific discoveries also address, we must seek harmony between these things, the two books. Because God's one author, even though he's written two books, they are in agreement. We may not understand their agreement yet. And so we have two options when we see disharmony between the Scripture book and the creation book that God has given us. One option is to re-examine the hermeneutics of either the Bible that we are reading or the science that we are listening to. Or the other option, which we too often don't take, is just suspend your judgment. Just hold the bus. Just wait, because maybe, maybe the answers to the questions you're asking are not as readily available in either book yet. And so let's talk about one science, astronomy, the study of celestial objects and shapes. Astronomy is, of course, one of the oldest sciences. And today there's an app and I don't have this app, maybe some of you do, but there's an app that you can get that enables you to take your phone, point it up to the sky at night, and it, as it zeroes in on a star, it will tell you everything about that star. In one situation, the star that in view was in view was a star that began somewhere in the, in the early 16th century, I was told. Now, just let's hold that for a moment, hold that thought. This little scientific device pointed up to the sky, told me that that star began in the 16th century. So I just say, okay, let me get out my Bible. And I go to my Bible, and my Bible says, I thought God created all these stars on the fourth day. Okay, let's go back to science. And let's say, well, scientists, how do you, how do you determine that that star began in the 16th century? Well, actually, I've done a little bit of reading about that. And it's actually a fairly plausible answer to me how stars form out of interstellar gas and dust that could be completely in harmony with the fourth day of creation according to Genesis record. I mean, God created the clouds too, but there's a lot of them forming right now above our heads that weren't created on the fourth day. And so, okay, let's, let's, let's assume that this app is correct on the, the, the 16th century star. The star in question began shining before the Protestant Reformation. That blows me away. 
Okay, the star began shining. So, so Martin Luther, John Calvin and the boys looking up in the sky, they're not going to see that star, right? They're not going to see it. In fact, the light from that star traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, that's faster than my truck, even in the school zones, it would have taken years to arrive on planet Earth. In fact, the closest stars, not that one, but the closest stars that they have understood, th th these stars, the closest ones, will take over four years, our time, four years, for the light that leaves that star to be visible to the human eye when you see it on earth. Four years ago, the light that you saw from a star last night, four years ago it started. That's the closest ones. Now with the Hubble Space Telescope, they are saying to us that they are seeing stars 100 times further than that away from us. In fact, one of the most recent discoveries of a constellation called the Eagle Nebula is an estimated 7,000 years of light a years away. So in other words, 7,000 years ago was when the light started, and now the Hubble is, is seeing that light. That's what they're saying to us. I'm sorry if I'm boring you here. I, I really am on task. I really am. Talking about light, I mean, that's what we're going to get into that next week. Let there be light, God said. First thing, job one was light. How vast is this universe? And yet this universe is still finite. It's not infinite like our God. Now the mind-bending part for me, as I try to harmonize, harmonize these two books, the mind-bending part is, is trying to understand that when God spoke light into existence, let there be light. The question is, did it take several years to be seen? by Adam and Eve? And, of course, or did it instantaneously appear? That is one theory of some people, that it's God made the earth just to look old. It takes our sun, which is another star, right? Our sun, for the light to leave sun and arrive so that we receive that warmth on earth, it's eight minutes only and 20 seconds. Well, that could fit in with a 24-hour day for you young earth people. You could fit that in, right? Of course, if we question the speed that light travels at, then none of this matters. But I don't think, I doubt if there's anybody in this room that is questioning how light travels or how fast. I don't mean to be wasting our time. I really mean it. I don't mean to be wasting our time this morning. I am seriously, seriously wanting to read both books that God has given us and be faithful to the best of my puny intelligence to come to an understanding of the truth that harmonizes God's creation with God's Word. I believe they're both infallibly given. How do we read both books? 
How do we harmonize, harmonize these two books of science and Scripture? I want, to know, I want you to know it's not a new problem. In fact, the tension is not unique to our generation. There is a well-documented controversy, a controversy that arose in the 16th century when an astronomer by the name of Nicholas Copernicus suggested that the earth moves. This was contrary to the generally held interpretation of Scripture and the church's position, which was held that the earth was immovably fixed in space. They quoted Psalm 93, verse 1, The Lord reigneth, He is clothed with majesty, the Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith He hath girded Himself, and the world is established. It cannot be moved. And so they said, the world, the earth, is fixed. And the sun and everything else revolves around the earth. And that was their interpretation of Scripture. And that was their belief. The church took the geocentric belief back. Copernicus, sorry. From Thomas Aquinas, the church took the position way back in the 13th century, a geocentric fixed earth position. And he had studied, of course, prior to the time of Christ, the, the work of Aristotle. Aristotle held that the earth was fixed. He held that it was the center of the universe, and the sun, the stars, and all the planets revolved around the earth. And so when, Copernica, when Copernicus came with not a geocentric position, but a heliocentric position, saying that the sun is at the center and that the earth revolves around the sun, it caused serious problems among Christians. He published his work in 1543, teaching that the earth and the planets orbited the sun, and immediately he was called into question by Catholics and Protestants alike. Pronounced anathema. Several years later than Copernicus, in 1632, Galileo, another scientist, also came to a fixed earth view and taught that the earth, or rejected the fixed earth view and came to the position that the earth moved. Now, Galileo was a Christian, a God-fearing man, a person who believed in God as creator. And he said this, he said, God is creator, he has endowed us, these are the words of Galileo, he has endowed us with the senses, the reason, and the intellect intended us not to forego their use and by some other means to give us knowledge which we can attain by them. In other words, he's saying how foolish it would be to think that only the Bible is the way that God gives knowledge. Several times he was asked about his, his beliefs. Galileo's science was perceived as threatening the long-held interpretation of Scripture and the view of the church. And in the end, he was made to recant in a public inquisition. Galileo was made to recant his position of a moving earth and made to call it a fixed earth. And, and I read one source that said to me that even as he was leaving the podium and, and going down ahead of his inquisitors, he was heard muttering, but it does move. <laughs> now, I share that today because... All of us, I think, would be in agreement that the earth moves. That it not only rotates on its own axis, but it's rotating around in its orbit of the sun. And that's how we figure out our calendar year. 
And in fact, it's moving at the speed of about 30 kilometers per second, even though we keep our equilibrium here because of gravity and so on. So why don't we question that? We didn't come to that conclusion through studying the Bible. We came to that conclusion through studying what the other book says and is saying it doesn't disagree with this book that God gave us in his written word. And so the Copernicus Galileo story, what does it teach us? The Copernicus Galileo story from the pages of church history is a story about faulty hermeneutics. But it was not faulty hermeneutics of the science. It was faulty hermeneutics of the Scripture, wasn't it? We can all say, yeah, they were wrong. So let's move on now to talk about inductive Bible study and what it is to do good hermeneutics. We must read the Bible in a way that improves our vision and not impairs our vision. And it's so important that we understand what good Bible teaching and interpretation means. And so how is it that we are to not read the Bible? These are pretty simple. I'm just going to go through these so that you can be refreshed. We, we must not read the Bible with proof texting. That is the idea of lifting a verse out of its context. You know, we must not make the stand, that the standard of our Bible reading. We miss the point. We must not... Have, we must not be ignorant of the intent of the author who wrote the words. We must not have our mind made up when we already approach Scripture before we read it. We must not impose on the text because expository understanding means you're lifting what is the meaning of the text out of it, not bringing your idea and imposing it on the text. We must not think that we can have a disregard for the historical context and so on. And I think we know all, a little bit about all those things. One of the other dangers is, of course, that we, <clears throat> we approach the Scriptures with our isms, because our isms can blur our vision of a good hermeneutic. In other words, we have a system of theology. We were, we were weaned on a system of theology from the youngest age, and we somehow, when we look at Scripture, we put on our ism glasses, and we read the Bible with those glasses, whether it's dispensationalism, or premillennialism, or cessationism, or Calvinism, or Arminianism. You can list a bunch of isms, and all the ones I just listed are within the fold of Christian family. I'm not talking about atheism or agnosticism. Those are isms that are outside of the faith. But I'm talking about faith-isms that are within the fold. If you, if you adopt an ism and then read your Bible, you're going to, try, it's, you're going to see all kinds of stuff that, that agrees with your thinking. <laughs> how do you be objective in that way? And so, how do we do hermeneutics properly? We need to remember there are three steps that are very vital. Number one is the intent of the author is always of paramount importance. In other words, the author's intent, the original intent of the author, in this case, Moses, writing under God's inspiration, the book of Genesis. Okay? Secondly, is the meaning of what was written. Not, not imposing our meaning on it, but taking the meaning of what was understood then. And then thirdly, understanding that we have our subjective interpretations, our ways of thinking. And so when we think about these three steps, we can look at them another way, and we can see them as uh, the inductive Bible study three steps. Number one, obs observation, which is what does it say? Lord, help me to see what it says, not what I think it 
says, or what I want it to say. Then there's the interpretation piece. Lord, help me to understand what it really meant, not what I wanted it to mean. And then, Lord, help me to understand how to live it. What does it mean for me? And too often we skip over those first two steps and we arrive at the third. So the author's original intent, the original meaning, and our own subjective interpretations, we often need to put those aside and think about these things. It might surprise you for me to say this, but I'm going to say it. (laughs) The Bible was not Genesis, I'll say. Genesis was not written to you directly. Okay? Genesis was written by Moses to the nation of Israel. And if we're going to understand Genesis, we have to understand Israel, their worldview, their culture, their language. We must understand. We must be very careful to run into our interpretations. Uh, Let me read to you what John Walton says. An author by the name of John Walton who wrote a book called The The Lost World of Genesis 1. He said, some Christians approach the text of Genesis as as if it has modern science embedded in it or it dictates what modern science should look like. This approach is called concordism as it seeks to give a modern scientific explanation for the details in the text. What does he mean? He's saying this, by, and he means that those in Israel who first received the book of Genesis did not know that stars were suns. They did not know that the sun was further away than the moon. They did not know that the earth was round and it was on a moving, moving through space. And, and tons of distinctions between natural and supernatural that we make, they didn't make those distinctions. And we could go on and on about how they understood their world that is very different than the way we understand our world after thousands of years of study. And we must be careful not to impose modern, scientifically understood issues upon the text of Genesis, this ancient text. Many of the questions that we might bring to the Bible are not the questions that the Spirit of God, nor Moses the author, nor Israel the recipients were asking or reading when we read Genesis. We distort the meaning of the text when we come with the kind of distorted hermeneutic. We call it maybe cultural imperialism to think that we know better in reading their literature. Certainly, Scripture transcends Hebrew and Greek cultures of the Bible that were written But sound interpretation demands that we disrobe the Hebrew or Greek culture and language and worldview and we re-robe it, the core truth of God's Word, into the robes that we will understand in our day and age. Now I know this is going off in lots of places and I know some of you might be sitting there asking, well, when are we going to open the Bible and just start reading Genesis and understanding it? And the answer to that is next week. And I say that because these first two sermons, I believe, were critical, were essential to set the table because when we get into Genesis, we're going to be talking about these things. It is imperative that we have a similar understanding. It is imperative that that we interpret, we do good hermeneutics. It is imperative that we not cast out science as though it is some evil discipline. It is imperative that we read the the both books that God has given us and that we follow through with integrity in our study. Can I conclude 
this morning by sharing with you what some of us heard at a Desiring God conference. Um, we can shut that off now, Shelley, thanks. At the Desiring God conference last, last winter, a guy named Cameron Cole was the director of youth ministries at the Cathedral Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And he was at this conference that we were at last year and he was teaching about the importance of teaching children eternal truth. The importance of bringing truth like creation, truth like eternal destiny, truth like knowing Jesus is critical to your salvation and so on, to children. He was teaching on that. And then he shared his personal testimony. He said, on November the 10th, 2013, he was tucking his little three-year-old son, also named Cameron, into bed. And his son said to him, Daddy, will I see Adam and Eve when I get to heaven? And he went on to say, I'm not going to eat from that tree. <clears throat> and Cameron explained to his little three-year-old son in a three-year-old way that we have all eaten from that tree. That we have all sinned. That we have all disobeyed God. And that's why Jesus Christ came. And that's why Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And in a three-year-old understanding way, he had an understanding of the grace of God through Christ. <clears throat> he went to bed that night, but he did not wake up the next morning, that little boy. He died the way that one in 100,000 children die. Cameron and Lauren Cole would never have seen it coming. Their three-year-old son was perfectly healthy. He died mysteriously. And even with an autopsy <clears throat> and a genetic testing made possible, no cause of death was ever discovered. And when Cameron Cole shared with us this story, he said the only thing that he could turn to, because science had no answers for them in that moment, the only thing that he could turn to was his faith for answers. And tremendous peace came upon them. He was grateful to God that he had taken the time on the night before to talk to his son about Jesus. He said, there's no answer. But God's word has given me answer. Friends, I share that with you. God has not left himself without a witness. He has rock-solid answers to the biggest questions that you and I will ever face. And we find the answers when we take both books that God has given us. And we do good hermeneutics on both books. And where there is disharmony... We suspend our judgment. But we do not throw out the baby with the bathwater. And the rock-solid teaching that we come to in God's Word about Creator God, we never let go of. Would you stand with me as we conclude our service? And I'm sure that my message this morning has probably raised all kinds of questions, but 
I would just ask that you join me in asking God to help us answer these questions. And I'll ask the worship team to come and we'll conclude with a song. Father, we thank you for your word. And I thank you, God, for the power of your word. And we thank you for both words, the word of creation, that creation cries out. It displays the glory of God. Their language has gone out from one end of the earth to the other. Lord, we thank you that we can look up and understand more about you. And Father, we thank you that whether we're looking through a telescope or a microscope, Lord, everything cries, you are creator. And we thank you for that. But Lord, sweet God, we thank you as well for your written word that you've given us a record of redemptive history that reminds us of your relationship with humanity and your longing to be in relationship with each one of us. And I pray that as we are entering and stepping onto this hallowed ground of Genesis, that as we take our sandals off, we will humble ourselves to understand that, God, you are greater than our understanding. But you have given us enough understanding so that we can, we can study. We can study your creation and we can study your word. And we pray that you will give us deeper answers to the deepest questions that we are asking. We commit the study to you. Jesus.